Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. These are, believe it or not, the last three verses of chapter 10. You may have been wondering if we'd ever get out of chapter 10. Well, here we are. We're finally here. The last three verses. You will recall that this entire epistle is written to both true believers and then those who have made a profession of faith uh, in Christ but are now tempted to a fall away or to apostatize or to apostatize. Uh, the primary reason that they are tempted to fall away is that they're facing intense persecution. Now, there's other reasons as well, but really it's come down to the difficulty of the trials in their life are getting many of them to sit and to think, this Christianity thing is too hard. It's too hard. It's hard for me to live. I've got, I've got persecution. I've got physical trials. I've got relationship issues. I've got, I've got spiritual attacks. I'm tempted to do different things. It's, it's a nonstop battle. How do I keep pressing on? Because I'm telling you, I'm getting weary. And you know, some of those who had made professions of faith but had not really been, not really surrendered their life, not really all in. When they face those trials, they're like, you know, it was a lot easier when I was back in Judaism. It was a lot easier for me back then because, well, all I had to do was go and make my sacrifices and show up to temple and everybody still loved me and my family and they, they welcomed me in the community but since I've made a profession of faith in Christ, it's been, one, it's been one after another, nonstop, attack, attack, attack. Wouldn't it just be easier if I just went back to Judaism? And so the author of Hebrews is writing specifically to that group. Now, there's another group in the church, too. And incidentally, these three groups are in every single church, not just from the very first church, but even through today. There are those who are true believers. They are genuinely saved. They know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God has saved them. They are a child of the King. Then there are those who have made a profession of faith. They've come right up to the line, if you will, right up to the narrow gate with their toes right on the line, but they will not step through because they're just not quite sure they want to live that life and give up the things in their life that they really like. It's hard. And so there, there's that group. And of course, there's the unsaved who come to church to hear more. Perhaps they're drawn to the church. Perhaps somebody invited them to the church. They don't know Jesus at all. But every church has those three groups. But here, the author of Hebrews is really trying to do two things. He wants to speak to those who've made a profession of faith. And he wants them to know, you're in danger. You're in immediate danger. You're in imminent danger. Because if Christ were to return at this moment and you don't know him as your personal Savior, there is no second chance. And then he wants to speak to those who are true believers and he wants to encourage them. Because they've been battling for a long time and they're getting worn down too. And he wants to gather those true believers in and he wants to say, hey, listen, hang in there. Press on. It's worth it. Hang in there. You can do it. With God's help, you can do it. 
So the writer of Hebrews, he set out to exhort them. Now remember, he spent the first ten and a half chapters explaining why Christ is better. Why everything that you made a profession in and towards and to in Christianity is far superior to anything that you had before. Better than the angels. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than the priests. Better than the high priest. Better than Aaron. Better than everything. Better than the old covenant that you had under the law. Everything you have in Christ is better. He spends ten and a half chapters doing that. Then in verse 25, if you recall here, he starts to kind of separate these two groups now, right? He says he starts to contrast those who are in the faith and demonstrating genuine salvation and those who choose to abandon their profession of faith and return to Judaism. And again, true saving faith is an enduring faith. Let me say that again. True saving faith is an enduring faith. The opposite of enduring faith or you, some of you may have in your text a persevering faith, a persevering faith. The opposite of that is to fall away, to apostatize. And the greatest of all sins, as we spent some time on here in this last warning, the greatest of all sins is apostasy. It is the sin that brings the most judgment. It is the most severe punishment from God. And it's reserved for those who draw closest to God and then reject him. It's even a more severe than those who never come to him. It is the most damning sin a man or a woman can commit. Matter of fact, verse 26, you may recall, gives us a definition of what an apostate looks like. For if we go on sinning how? Willfully. Remember, we talked about those two different types of sin, right? There's, there's sins that we do unwillfully, if you will, or yeah, is that even a word, unwillfully? And there's the sins that we do willfully, right? We, we say, I know what God says, but I want to do it anyway. I like this. God won't mind. I'll just ask for repentance. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. To receive the knowledge of truth, the gospel, to receive it time and time and time again. To profess Jesus Christ as your Savior. To see the Holy Spirit transforming lives all around you in a community of faith. To be part of that community. Perhaps even sharing in communion. As if you truly believed. And then to walk away. To reject all of that and never come back. Is the greatest sin. Now, some of you may say, wow, you know, I had a time where I was kind of backsliding a little bit, but, you know, the Lord drew me back in. He's not talking about that. He's talking about those who reject Christ and never come back. They willfully make this intention in their mind. That's not for me. I understand the whole truth, but I'm going to opt out. I don't want it. I'm going to live for me instead. One commentator, one commentator described that sin of apostasy as going to hell from the doorsteps of heaven. You're right there. Just, ah, I'm out. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. If you could take all the most heinous sins of man, roll them into one giant mass, they would not equal even a minute percentage of the weight of apostasy. 
Think about that. And yet some were indeed falling away. They were apostates. Now why is apostasy the sin of all sins? Why is that? Because to have the full knowledge of the truth of the gospel, to hear it again and again, to know it, remember, epigenosis, to know it intimately, not just know of it, not just know there is a gospel, but know it intimately, and then willfully reject that truth, remember verse 29 tells us, is to trample underfoot the Son of God. It's like kicking dirt in his face. It's like spitting in his eye. Yeah, yeah, okay, the Jesus thing, sure, whatever. Not for me. It's to treat it as no big deal. Yeah, some guy came, hung on a cross, whatever. Not, not a big deal to me. Secondly, it's to regard, look at verse 29 again, to regard as unclean means to treat as common the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No big deal. His blood, not any different than anybody else's blood. That's what it's saying. It's a complete rejection of his atoning work on the cross. And then third, again in verse 29, it is to insult the Holy Spirit. It is to grieve the Holy Spirit. It is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come to the apostate, witnessed to him or her about the spiritual reality of the gospel. The Holy Spirit had courted their soul, but then the apostate rejects the Spirit's witness with arrogance. Those people deliberately close their eyes to the light. And for that person, verse 26 tells us, there is no sacrifice for that sin. There is no sacrifice available that could be given when you reject your only means of salvation. There is no other way. Verse 27 reminds us the only certainty that you have in your future, if you ever do that, is judgment. And verse 29 then warns us that it's a more severe judgment for those that fall away. How much more severe is the judgment for doing these things? Remember, apostasy was considered so vile, so final, so severe, you had to have two or three witnesses you couldn't just say, well, that person blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That person, that person uh, struggled, so let's just, you know, let's just condemn them to God's judgment. No, no, you had to have two or three people confirm that this person had willfully rejected God. And remember, those are the three witnesses against you, trampling underfoot, regarding unclean, insulting the Holy Spirit. So if you apostatize and you stand before God, who will witness against you? Those three witnesses against you. Remember, many people think they're going to stand before God and then argue their case. Lord, you don't know how tough I had it here. And what about my spouse? Boy, they egg me on all the time. That's why I, I'm not the. That's why I just never really wanted to commit all the way. I just I didn't see it in my spouse, and so I just wondered if it was really true. Or I had some trials in my life, and so I thought. Those three witnesses will stand against you, and there will be no discussion. Verse 30, God himself, notice, is the one who takes vengeance. Not the angels. God himself will judge you. And verse 31 reminds you, in case you had any doubt, how it's not a good thing to be judged by God himself. Verse 31 it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
I doubt there's a more scary verse in all of the Bible. Which is why the author of Hebrews has been pleading, inviting, encouraging, begging, warning these professing Christians and the immediate need for them to go all in. Quit hanging around the fence like you're part of the family of God, but you've never truly surrendered. So verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast without wavering. Verse 24, let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The author of Hebrews is saying to them, it's decision time. It's time to quit straddling the fence and to choose life. It's time to be all in. And so beginning in verse 32 now, so as not to burden the true believers in the congregation, the author now switches gears from warning to encouragement. He says there in verse 32, remember the former days. Remember what it was like when you first made your profession of faith. How excited you were and how much zeal you had. Remember the things that you did. It draws their minds back to how God had worked in their lives during that time, in spite of some very difficult trials. He encourages them to remain strong as they have in the past, even though they suffered loss. Remember, some of these some of these professing Christians had been imprisoned, and even though uh, and those that weren't would go and minister to them and bring them food and clothing and show. And when they did that, they were identifying with them. And saying, hey, I'm part of that group. And then they brought up persecution amongst themselves, onto themselves as well. He said, remember those former days. Remember how you loved Christ so much you didn't care. Bring it on, world. I will stand for Christ. But now, now, now you're ready to walk away. What happened? He says, remember those former days. He says, I want you to remember that. That was a very trying time for, for you all. But what did you do? You endured. You persevered. God gave you the strength to get through it. Confidence, he says. He's, he's, he says, don't throw it all away in verse 35. He says, don't do it. He said, you didn't fall away then from Christ when the heat was turned up in adversity. You stayed faithful for, to him. He says, I want you to remember that and reflect on it. Verse 35, don't throw it all away. Don't throw away your confidence that Christ is who he said he is and will do what he said he will do. Now, he's not talking about confidence in yourself, but confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ and his atoning work on the cross is at the core of our saving faith. And saving faith has a great reward, heaven and the eternal glory of Christ. So that brings us then, if you will, to our text in verse 36. Verse 36, he says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Point number one in your notes, verse 36, you need to look forward with endurance. You need to look forward with endurance. He just finished telling them they need to look back and remember how they lived their lives right after their profession of faith. Now he tells them not only to look back, but you need to look forward. We see three things in this verse that are connected to looking forward. One, you need to have endurance. Second, 
You need to do the will of God. And number three, you need to receive what he has promised, which, of course, is eternal life. Now, what is endurance? Again, some of you may have the word perseverance here. That's the same idea. It's not giving up. It's taking one more step when you're, we're not sure that we actually can. It means finding strength in itself. It goes back to confidence, which is found in Christ. Let me remind you, though, endurance does not earn your salvation. Rather, it's evidence of your salvation. The persecutions, the injustices that they endured presented strong temptations for them to give up, to accept worldly values and practices, to just kind of go with the flow. You know, it would be a lot easier if I just did the things my friends do who are unsaved. Then I wouldn't have to deal with those snide remarks. I wouldn't have to talk. I wouldn't have to deal with them talking behind my back or treating me so differently or, or uh, unfriending me, if you will, now that I'm a follower of Christ or being ostracized in my own family. I wouldn't have to do any of that if I just go with the flow. Many today are tempted to throw away their confidence in Christ their confidence and their salvation every time troubles come their way. Every time. They think, man, you know, this Christianity thing is okay, but man, when the heat's up, it's easier to go with the flow. Keep your place in Hebrews here in chapter 10 and turn back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, please. Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that by enduring, you will gain life. Rather, by the way you live your life, you will demonstrate by faith that your life is in Christ and it is true. That's what he's saying here. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 15. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that endurance comes from God, will encourage and prompt us to glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, you need to have endurance, but your endurance is also connected to something else. It's also connected to the will of God. To endure in any other way than doing his will is not true endurance, my friends. What is the Father's will for our lives? Well, first let me share with you what the Gospel of Matthew, verse, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother 
and sister and mother. Notice the connection here. Doing God's will. Who are those? What is the Father's will for your life? Well, you're in Romans. Keep turning to your right, if you will. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition or our goal, whether at home or absent, to do what? To be pleasing to him. That's what our goal is. Our goal is to be pleasing to him. What is it that's pleasing to him? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Incidentally, there's many things that are pleasing to God, but I want to hit on the one that's tied to our purpose in his will. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For whom? To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that they would be the firstborn among many brethren. You know what God's will is for your life? He wants you to be conformed more and more every day to the likeness of Jesus. That's what he wants. That's his will for your life. Did you know that? He wants you to think like Jesus and act like Jesus and have a heart for others like Jesus. He wants you to be more and more and more like Jesus every single day. That's what his goal is. That's what his will is for your life. How does he do that? Well, sometimes he brings people into your life to speak truth to your life. And guess what he also does? Sometimes he turns up the fire of adversity a little bit so that you will learn to be more and more dependent upon him and less and less on you. And he allows that into your life. Not because he doesn't know your heart, because your heart is deceptive. You don't know your heart. You'll believe your heart's message to yourself. You'll believe that, well, here's proof for you. We always cast ourselves in the best light, don't we? You ever had an argument with somebody that you love? And you tell your side of the argument? Does it ever, you ever make that argument sound like, well, you were so nice and gracious to me, and then I responded like a real evil person? When we share our side of the argument, we're the hero of the story. They're the ones with the problem, right? Our hearts are very deceptive. You and I have been called to do the will of God and to finish his work in our lives. All of us are to glorify him with our lives. And he has given us all gifts to accomplish his will. But calling ourselves Christians and yet not doing the will of God is contrary to everything Christ spoke of when it comes to our faith being shown in a way that's alive and vibrant in him. In other words, to say that you're a follower of Christ and then not live your life like a follower of Christ is antithetical to everything Christ says my children will do. For those that endure, demonstrating the genuineness of their faith by the way they live their life each day, 
It is they who are the ones who receive what was promised. What is it that was promised for those who are saved by grace through life? Eternal life. Eternal life. Again, it's pointed out, Jesus isn't saying that you do something to gain eternal life. He's simply saying, if you have eternal life, it will show itself true by doing his will out of the gratitude and thankfulness of your heart. Because you recognize everything Christ has done for you, you want to live your life in a way that glorifies him. What glorifies him? You becoming transformed and conformed more and more to the image of his son. The more you look like Jesus every day, the more you accomplish the Father's will in your life and bring him glory. That's the point. Doing the will of God is practicing the will of God in every day as we depend on him, growing in his grace, giving him the glory. And this is where we find the confidence, if you will, in an earthly sense. Now it's true that our confidence and faith is in Christ, but it's also found in the way he practically works out the sanctification in our lives. In other words, the more that you live out your life for Christ, the more assurance you have that he is working in and through you. Let's go to point number two back in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38a. Let's read those together. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. What we have here in verses 37 and 38 are two quotes out of the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. One is actually out of Isaiah 26, 20. And the other one is out of Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. But he kind of moves them around a little bit in this Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews when he recites them. The words, in just a very little while, come from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. And they emphasize the point that the readers who would have been listening to Isaiah at that point in time needed to wait patiently for Christ's return. The original quote in Isaiah was written to the people of Judah who were being threatened by a hostile enemy. They were facing persecution. They were facing annihilation, if you will. And God is encouraging them to hold on for a little while until he delivers them and judges their enemy. Now, in the Septuagint, Isaiah 26.20 simply states, in a while. But in our verse, notice it says, in a very little while. But the actual Greek translation is, in a very, very little while. And it's in the present tense, which means... It's already happening now. What's he talking about? Who's the he? Notice this, notice this in our verse. For yet in a very, very little while, he who is coming. Who is the he? Everybody? That's right. That's Christ. That's the same he that's the subject of the entire epistle. It's the same he that's the subject of the entire New Testament. It's the same he that the entire Old Testament has been pointing towards. That's Christ. And the point here is that he can return at any time. That Christ is coming and he will come and he will not delay. The next thing on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture. Now, we're going to take a side detour here just a second. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't want to get too, too hung up here because then we'll be off talking about uh, prophecy and end times. But I do want to show you what the point here is. And the point here is that Christ can return at any time. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read it for you, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is sanctification? It is your process of becoming more and more like Christ. That's what we were talking about earlier. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification, right? He's saying, don't be doing the things that you did before and think that it's okay. You should be becoming more and more like Christ. And he says here, jump down to verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge your brethren to excel still more, to make it your ambition, your goal, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The good folks in Thessalonica were worried. They were waiting for the Lord's return. They knew it could happen at any time. And they thought, my dear loved one, has already passed on. They missed the day of the Lord. And Paul said, no, no, no. No, they're already with the Lord. They're already with the Lord. So he's encouraging them. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's their body coming up in a glorified body. Then we who are alive, those alive at the time of the rapture, and remain will be caught up together with them where? In the air, or in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's kind of the overview of what's happening. Right? Now, what has to happen next in God's prophetic timetable before the rapture? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's beyond the scope of our time here today for me to walk through all of this in great detail. But I would encourage you to study these because these are in here for your encouragement to know that Christ is coming again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Notice here. Uh, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come 
unless the apostasy comes first. Now, what's the it there? The it is in verse 2, the day of the Lord. Okay? Now, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord includes the time from the rapture forward. Okay? It's the time of the rapture forward. So everything that occurs after the rapture. Now, notice here, the apostasy comes first. What is the apostasy? Well, we've been talking about what apostasy is, but here he's not talking about individual apostasy because, beloved, that's been going on since the very first church. He's talking about global apostasy. That's when the entire church starts to fall away. Before the days of the Lord can, can occur, the church of Jesus Christ globally will start to fall away. They will abandon the essential doctrines of the faith. They will stop preaching the whole counsel of God. They will minimize sin and embrace worldly systems of morals and practices. Now, I'm not sure when that day is. Nobody on earth actually knows when that day is for sure or when that exact moment will be. But let me tell you this. Judging by the state of the church, the global church today, it seems like the church today is moving ever closer to that day if we're not already there. What proof do I have to make a statement like that? Go randomly into any town and try and find a church that unapolog unapologetically teaches the word and preaches the full counsel of God and true doctrines of faith. You won't find many in that town, sadly, if any at all these days. Verse 4. What has to happen after that? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is the Antichrist. He will be a man who exalts himself and demands to be worshipped. He will take his place in the rebuilt temple, which occurs during this time, and he will display himself as being God. Verse 5 and 6, what restrains him from doing that now? Look at verse 5 and 6. Do you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now? He makes that sound like that's a fact. You already know. So that in the, his time, he will be revealed. What is it that restrains this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, from assuming and taking and doing what the Bible says he will do? and exalting himself in the temple of God. It's not a what, it's a whom. It's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is removed, as the church is raptured, then that restraint is gone, and the Antichrist will make his move. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then the lawless one will, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders. He says, he, the Antichrist, will come with the activity of Satan. He'll be a deceiver, a liar. With all power and signs and false wonders. Look at verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness. For whom? For those who perish. Why did they perish during the tribulation? It says it tells us in this verse here. 
because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, my friends, look at verse 11 here. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Why? Verse 12. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. My friends, there are going to be many who are saved during the tribulation. So who is this referring to? Who is this talking about? It's not... It is not those with the full knowledge of the gospel, not those who have received the full knowledge and then fallen away, not the apostates. No, those won't be the ones saved during the tribulation. It will be those who've never heard the gospel before. It will be those to the, it will be the ones to come to salvation during the tribulation. They will be the ones. You know what the professing Christians will say? They'll say this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait until... I see that the rapture occurs, and then I'll know it's true. And then a few minutes after that, I'm going to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then, hey, I'll just join you all maybe three, four, five, six, seven years later. I'll just wait until I know for sure. Because if I have to do it now by faith, then I'm going to have to give up a lot of things that I really like doing, especially my sin. But the text tells us here, in 2 Thessalonians, that when Christ returns after the rapture in the day of the Lord, it's too late for you that have a full understanding of the gospel and have willingly, repeatedly, finally rejected him. That God will send a deluding influence, is what my text says, on your hearts. You'll actually believe the lies and deception of the Antichrist. harden your hearts. My friends, if you're a professing Christian here today and this is your plan, I urge you to think about that again. If you have people in your family, if you have loved ones that you know that you think are doing this, I urge you to share with them this passage. Remind them that they are playing roulette with their soul. They need to live out their faith. They, they, Jesus could come back at any time. There may not be a tomorrow for them to decide. He's not telling them not only to look for, they also need to look upwards also. They need to live out their faith every day by faith, awaiting for the imminent return of Christ. They need to be all in today. Now for the true believers, our other group, the point is this present life is a very little while. As a matter of fact, it's a very, very little. In the span of all eternity, if we're fortunate by the grace of God to live 80, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, how long is 100 years in the span of eternity? Blink of an eye, snap of a finger, strike of lightning. But you make the most important decision you'll ever make in your life in the span of this life. So he, now he speaks to the true believers. He's saying, listen. Everything that you're suffering now, every trial that you have now, every difficult situation you have now, pales into comparison to what you will receive when you are in the presence of Christ forever. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he calls them this momentary light affliction, which was producing the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
So that's the second key to having endurance, my friends, in this Christian life. Look to the coming of Jesus and then live in the light of this coming of Jesus. Now, who is it that does that? Look at verse 38a. The righteous ones. Those that have been declared righteous by grace through faith in Christ. But the emphasis here in that verse is on shall live, shall live. God's righteous ones are the ones he declares righteous through faith in Christ. The righteous ones are the ones that live by faith. I meet many Christians today who live by their feelings, not by faith in Christ. But we are to walk with Christ just as we received him by grace through faith. And our aim should be to please him, as the author will go on to say in chapter 11, without faith it's impossible to please God. How do you go on in the Christian life, my friends? By faith. You began the Christian life by faith in Jesus. You continue your Christian life by faith in Jesus. You endure in the Christian life by faith in Jesus. You know, many people start off with a profession of faith, and then somewhere along the way they get lost. And it's always because they've taken their eyes off of Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, as this author is going to say himself in just a few more verses. He's saying... Look back, look forward, look up, keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember your zeal when you were first saved. Look forward to Christ's return. Look up to him in faith. The Christian life is not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon, and it can be hard when you're surrounded by sinful people in a broken world. But keep on believing. Don't put the coming of the Savior in second place in your life. Don't put faith in Christ as he's offered in the gospel as second place in your life. Look back, look forward, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now look at point three here as we close. Verse 38b and 39. We must never shrink back from living out our faith. We must never shrink back from living out our faith. Remember the two groups addressed in this letter are here in direct contrast. Some are drawing or shrinking back and are headed for destruction. Others, verse 39, continue to believe and then experience the saving of their souls. Those who shrink back fall away in unbelief. They will be destroyed in the coming judgment. God has no pleasure in them, our text tells us. And after receiving the full knowledge of God, being enlightened to the gospel truth, partaking in a community of believers, watching God transform lives, If they shrink back from God, listen carefully, God will shrink back from them. That term, utter destruction, in this context means the destruction which consists in the loss of eternal life. It is those who will renounce their professed faith in the Messiah as high priest and return to a dependence upon Levitical sacrifices for salvation. The word of God is very clear in these statements to the effect that once a person is saved, they can never be lost. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to someone who's not saved. It's the same person he was speaking to in verse 26, verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Actually throughout in the warning passages, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. It is those who renounce their faith. It's the person who draws back to destruction. That has to be an unsaved person. Because the author of Hebrews is saying, let's get Let God's threat of eternal damnation and your faith in his promise of eternal life govern the way you live. 
He's saying we should be living our lives in such a manner that if God's promises of heaven are not true, then we are fools to live our lives that way. We should live with that much confidence, that much assurance, that people would say that person is a fool because they are so sold out, so all in for Jesus. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, only pity us, Paul would say. But if there's a heaven and hell, living by faith in God's promises is the only way to God. Verse 39b, however, lest those who are truly saved, again, are burdened. He places himself in the picture again, the author does. He identifies himself clearly with those who believed and are saved. And although the warning has been issued to the professing believer, the author says, I have confidence. I have confidence that his readers, like himself, will endure to the preservation of their souls. He's seeking to encourage them. He wants to strengthen their faith. And these last words of chapter 10 set up for us, they segue for us, chapter 11. Because you know who's in chapter 11? Chapter 11 are a whole bunch of people who endured by faith. And you're going to see some very, you're going to look at their lives and go, how is that person in the hall of faith? That's what chapter 11 is called. How in the world could that be? Look at the sin. Look at the things. Look at the struggles. Look at the trials. Look at the temptations. But there they are, etched forever in God's holy word as those who endured by faith. So after giving this exhortation, he now says, let me give you an example of some people who went through some difficult things. And guess what they did? They endured by faith. And he begins to list them one by one. My friends, this whole passage is an exhortation to professing believers to not fall away and to cling to Christ. He exhorts them to persevere, to endure, to continue to do the will of God. He reminds them that the Lord is coming back and that those who belong to him, whom he refers to as my righteous ones, are those that live by faith, who don't shrink back, even though there's a great temptation to do so. That same encouragement needs to be heard by God's people today. It needs to be heard by you and me. And so taking my cue from the writer of this letter, let me encourage you today. Do not throw away your confidence in the Lord. Do not throw it away. Let me encourage you to keep on hanging on to Jesus. To not grow weary in doing good. To not grow weary in doing his will. To not grow weary in following him and trusting in his promises and in waiting for his return. Let me urge you to remember the former days and to look forward to Christ's return and to look up to Christ for strength and to continue to live by faith, never, ever shrinking back. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day and Lord, this entire chapter, and Lord, how it's pierced us, that warning just has pierced our souls. Now, Father, every church is made up of believers and professing believers and the unsaved. And Lord, I believe that the vast majority who are here today are true believers. But Lord, you may know of some because you know their hearts who are still professing believers. 
Lord, is to them that this warning is specifically written to not wait another day, to not presume upon the grace of God, but to be all in. I pray, Lord, if your words have pierced their soul today, that today would be the day, even right where they're sitting, where they would cry out to you, Lord, cry out to you, surrender their life. You would save them. And Father, to those who are truly saved, to our genuine believers here, those, Lord, who would know without a shadow of doubt that they are your children. Father, I pray that you would encourage their hearts, that they indeed are the righteous ones. Encourage their hearts to endure, Lord, not in their own strength, but in the strength of the one who gives them strength. And Lord, I pray that they would look to you, look to you, to gain the strength, Lord, that they need to get through whatever trial they're in right now. And I know, Lord, some specifically that are going through very difficult times. I pray, Lord, you would give them comfort, give them peace, and strengthen them, Lord. Give them the endurance as only you can do. And may they willingly receive that strength and endure. We ask this in Christ's name.